Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Good morning, church. It is so good to be back with you in the flesh. You guys have been so gracious to me, giving me hugs and high fives and how are yous and texts, calls, cards, everything. You guys have been really gracious to me and my family. If you're a guest, I've been out of town for about two weeks and then uh, two months. And then before that, I was in grand jury duty for three months. And so if you've been here for like half a year, I'd love to meet you still. It has been a wild roller coaster for 2023, but this church was never built on me, my friends. It's been built on the word of God and God himself and the leaders that make up this church. And so if you're a leader, I just ask or thank you guys so much for you preaching and leading and singing and caring for this church as I'm gone. You guys were phenomenal. Thank you for your love, your care, your grace. And if I've not met you, I'm Aaron. I am the pastor. And usually I'm here every week serving this city for about six years. And my mom went through a really difficult medical diagnosis in North Carolina with cancer. And we've been caring for her in this time. So guys, thank you for your love and your care for me. And I'm really pumped to be back because this week we're starting a brand new series. Guys, we made it out of Genesis. We made it out. Praise God. It's like the exodus of Genesis. We made it out. And this week we are starting a brand new book, the book of John. And if you're familiar with John, uh, it has so many, so many beautiful themes. And this week we're just going to look at the purpose thesis statement of the book. So we actually go to the very end of the book in John chapter 20. And John tells us, hey, this is why I wrote the book. And he tells us so that we may believe in Christ, who is the son of God. And so all of today is just the introduction. Okay, so if you're taking notes, here's what we're titling it. The intro to John, really creative, right? Really creative, the intro to John and my three burning questions is what today's all about. It's just the introduction week. We gotta set it up for you. We gotta let you know, what are the themes? What's the purpose? What are you going to see over the next multiple months that we walk through this book verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because we've gotta see who did John give his life to serve, love, and write about? So as we introduce this book, uh, I wanna give you an illustration, okay? It might be a little goofy here, but I pray that it really helps you remember what's the big idea of John's book, okay? Um, As my family and I have been traveling recently, we've been on the road a ton and uh, caring for my mom. And I saw these giant billboard signs all over the highway. And maybe you've seen these if you've been traveling before. They were for this grand and glorious gas station called Bucky's. Now, some of y'all got there before I got there. Brandon, was that you? You got there first. Uh, My father-in-law took, uh, he's here with his wife, My mother-in-law, he took us on a fishing trip, a one-day fishing trip to kind of break up the stress of everything. And we passed by at Bucky's. And here's what I love about Bucky's. And if you've been there, you already know you're blessed and highly favored. This is for the rest of the people that don't know. Guys, Bucky not only holds the record for the largest gas station in the world, that's a feat. It's a super mega store that makes and sells its own fresh brisket. 
its own tacos, jerky, baked goods, candies, and more. Like guys, you can even walk row by row by row in this massive store. You can get clothes, you can get home decor, and you can get all the Bucky's merch you could imagine if that's your thing. And to top it all off, 2012, Bucky's won the best bathroom in America award. Y'all, it's a gas station. It's amazing. It's so impressive. But here's how it relates to the book of John, which is more important. How it relates to the book of John is not their bathrooms, but their billboard signs. They are absolutely ridiculous, but they're absolutely genius. Let me show you if you've ever seen one. Here's a few of them. Here's one. You had me at Howdy, but it's 73 miles away. They give you a heads up an hour plus before you could get to a Bucky's. But it's not just that. They go even further than 73 miles, 542 miles away. You can hit up a Bucky's, but they go further than that. 797 miles away is a Bucky's. And even the furthest sign that they have is this 1,039 miles away, you can get to a Bucky's. People drive by these signs all the time and they're like, wow, that's wildly specific how far away those stores are. But it also is also, they're like, how, how far away do they want me to prepare to go to this Bucky's? So the question really is for us, why do they post signs like this so far away? And here's why, and here's how it relates to John. The signs get you thinking about the reality and the riches of the store. The sign is preparing you for the riches of this gas station and it's fresh brisket and tacos. They think the creators, they think if they post up these signs far away, then you start thinking maybe Bucky's is really worth all this money to put up these billboard signs away from the town that it's in so that maybe you'll just go there. It's, it's genius. The sign creators are convinced that everyone needs to experience life at Bucky's, go to their bathrooms, eat their food. And they, so they go to all this trouble to build up these signs at all these places to draw people into its goodness. Again, the signs point to you, the reality and the riches of the store. And friends, oddly enough, that's exactly what the book of John is all about. It's a book of signs pointing out the reality and riches of Jesus being both God and Christ. In fact, guys, if you're familiar with John, scholars actually call John's gospel the book of signs because throughout his 21 chapters, John records in great specific detail all of these signs and all of these miracles that Jesus performed. And he did that for two main audiences, he writes to the Jewish people and he writes to the Gentile or non-Jewish people. To the Jewish people, he writes these book, he writes this book, and his goal is to give all these signs to point out this fact that this historical real person, Jesus of Nazareth, is indeed the long-awaited Messiah that had been foretold to the Jewish people by prophets like Moses and David and Isaiah. So all the signs that he's writing, he's sitting there, he's writing this book. He's like, I want them to see how is he the Messiah that's been prophesied by Moses and David. And I say, I want them to see what are the signs. And so he's writing out with great detail. 
But then he's also writing to the Gentile people because as you read the book, he's giving you clues about here's what this festival means. And here's this area of the city that you may not have gone to. And here's what Jewish people are practicing. So he's writing knowing that other non-Jewish people are gonna read this. And here's what his goal is. With all those people believing in different false gods and different religions, he's like, I want to tell you about Jesus who is the God. So I'm writing to you Gentile, non-God believing people. I want to write to you to let you know that this fully man Jesus is also fully God. That's what he's writing. And so he fills up this book, 21 chapters of signs and miracles, all pointing to Jesus being the God man, the Christ. In fact, that's what John tells us. That's what Kevin read for us. That's the purpose of this book. Let me read it again, verses 30 and 31. John says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this specific book, but all the signs that I have written are so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, two huge themes, Christ for the Jewish people, son of God for the Gentile people, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is convinced that if you would know this man, this God, that your life would be changed forever. What I love about this book is this book eventually reached my mom's hands in 1972. She was at High Point College before it became High Point University in High Point, North Carolina. Some other girls who loved Jesus on the campus of NC State traveled over to High Point College to share the gospel with people on campus. Knocked on dorms, like old school, knock on dorms. Hi, my name is Sarah. I wanna invite you to InterVarsity and share Jesus with you. My mom opens up the door, has this conversation, gets invited and begins to hear the gospel and read the Bible. She gets to the book of John and she's reading those famous verses like John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. My mom reads, she believes. And then just recently in her hospital bed, she wanted to call her brother and his wife who are not yet believers in Christ. And with those same verses that brought her life in Jesus, She's sitting there with her glasses, with cancer filling her body, and she's reading John 3, 16 to her brother, saying, this is the hope I have in this life and when I die. Mom asked me for help to turn over to John 10 and 11, where you see the story of Lazarus and a resurrection in this life. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Though one may die, He may have life in me forever in heaven. My mom's reading these verses and my uncle and his wife are sitting quietly on the phone as my mom is sharing, saying, this is going to be me. I I will die soon of this cancer that's in my body. But I want you to know that I'm gonna be okay because Jesus is my resurrection and my life and I'm going with him in glory. This book that John wrote wasn't just some document to be read and discarded. It was meant to give life. Life abundantly on this earth, life abundantly in glory. 
And if you're a Christian, you know it's that life that you cling to. This world, as Brandon preached the other week, is not as it should be. It's broken and we feel it. We feel the brokenness in us. And John is telling you, read it. Know this book. And it's not just life eternally. It's the word Zoe is that word life here. It means abundance of life. It means vitality. It means peace and joy and fulfillment. In the hardest of times, I could be anchored into something because God is my life. And Colossians tells me that my life is hidden in him. My friends, John is writing this book for anyone and everyone who would come and read it so that you would know he's the Christ, the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, the ceremonies for the Jewish people, and he's the fulfillment of every one of your longing and desires as a person who may be running after every other false God who is not Jesus himself. Guys, John may not be writing to us as the original audience, but John knew that he was being carried along by the Holy Spirit to write this book to where it would go into your hands and your ears this year. And as we read this, some of you might be thinking, I'm already a Christian, Aaron. I already have life in his name. I already believe he's the Christ. Is this book going to be helpful for me? And I would tell you, yes, yes, yes. Because when John is writing, he's not just writing so that you would initially believe in Jesus, but that word belief means long, sustained depth in Christ. That you would take your highs and your lows and you would tuck them into the life that God is giving you to give you vitality and strength and abundance that will sustain you even the hardest places of life. And that's the life that we all want. Some of us are wanting comfort. We're wanting ease. That is what heaven eventually offers you. But God wants you to be able to be in the midst of a circumstance and have steadiness and strength and peace because he's the life in that circumstance. Does that make sense? Christian, this book is very much for you. If you're maybe not a Christian and you've been exploring our church or Christianity, I'm so glad that you're here. John's initially writing for you. That you get to have a moment in time where you get to look through John's eyewitness evidence accounts, real historical evidence of John writing out what he saw and what other people saw amongst the thousands that we have proof of, that even Josephus, a Jewish non-Christian historian, writes about giving us evidence that this is a reliable book for us to trust. John's writing so that you may consider that Jesus is actually God and that he actually wants to know you, have a relationship with you and that you would actually give your life and heart over to him because he is good and will guide and love you in the darkest of moments. Church, regardless, this book is for you, whether you're a Christian or whether you're exploring Christianity. So guys, there's just three quick questions. And you know me, if I say quick, that means not quick. If you're a guest, just tricked you there. There are three questions that we're gonna seek to begin to unpack today. First one is what are the signs that John wrote about? 
Because he says that this book is written with all of these signs so that you may believe. So what are the signs that John wrote about and why are they so significant? Number two, how can we trust anything that John wrote? Because this was written such a long time ago, between 70 and 100 AD, after the fall of the Jewish temple. How do we know we can even trust these words that are written? And then last, what does John mean that by believing in Jesus, we can have life in his name? And I kind of cheated a little bit, got too excited and unfolded some of that point. So if you bail on me by that point, I already gave it to you on the front end, okay? So let's start with the first one. What are the signs that John wrote about in this book and why are they so significant? So guys, let's zoom out for a moment. Take a breath. We zoom out. And the book of John is built in four main sections, okay? So a little outline for you. Four main sections. The prologue, the signs, the farewell discourse, and the death and resurrection story of Jesus. Four parts. The prologue introduces the theme of Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God, the Word, the life, the light. All of those themes I just shared, you're going to see peppered in every single sermon from me, Brandon, and Kyle, because that's the purpose of what John is writing about, to communicate, this is who I'm writing with. This is the prologue. Then you're going to see chapters 1 through 12, the majority of John's time he spends on the signs, which then provide evidence for us that Jesus is indeed this Christ Messiah for the Jews and this Son of God for the Gentiles. Then towards the close of the book, we're going to see this farewell discourse in chapter 13 and beyond, which provides us some clear teachings from Jesus that are really raw, real, honest, easy to understand about how Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And then last, we'll see the narrative of the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is a reliable, historical, real event, which obviously is going to point out to us that he is indeed the Christ and Son of God, because he indeed did raise from the grave. Amen? But John does indeed focus the majority of his attention towards the sign portion of this book, chapters 1 through 12. It has more towards the end. Obviously, his crucifixion, resurrection are all signs, but he spends a lot of time on 12 chapters. And he does this focusing on seven major signs. Seven major signs. He's the Christ and Son of God. And that number seven, of course, is a major pattern in John's writing, to that number. Now, just pause. When I say Number is a pattern. Some of y'all get real excited, but there's patterns everywhere. And you turn me on to movies that are like about patterns in your back pocket. And you're looking at the size of your waist. You're like, oh, it's a 34, 30, whatever. That's a sign of, uh, don't go crazy on me with number signs here, okay? But what I am saying that John is intentionally writing using seven here. It's a major pattern for him because John's no stranger to Jewish tradition and symbolism with the number seven. He understood the number seven is used throughout Jewish tradition to represent completion, completion. And he used this system of seven actually three times in the book, three times to communicate that Jesus is indeed the completion of the prophecies, the laws, and the ceremonies described for the Jewish people in the First Testament. In addition to these seven primary miracles and signs that I mentioned, he also outlines seven discourses, teachings, of Jesus. And then he gives us seven I am statements 
from Jesus. Like when he says, I am the bread or I am the light of the world or I am the resurrection and the life. All major themes in the book, by the way. And each of these seven primary miracles and signs reveals something incredibly profound about the person and work of Jesus. Guys, this is just an intro week, so I'm not gonna preach the entire book, although I'd love to, and it would only be Brandon and me in the room and Claire trying to drag him out, right? But since it's an intro week, I just wanna give you like a, a taste, a taste. And that's a, even a theme Brandon's been bringing up in his sermons. Would you just taste and see that the Lord is good? As the Psalms tells us, let me give you a taste, a, a foreshadowing, a snapshot of those seven key signs and their significance so that you would behold and believe better in this Christ, the Son of God. Does that sound good? Here's a snapshot of those signs. The first sign, guys, if you're taking notes, the first sign is recorded in John chapter two, where Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding. Now that's a tongue twister and also a cool party trick, okay? If you can do that at a wedding, drink responsibly, drink not to get drunk, honor the Lord Jesus and how he says in his word, but that's still a cool party trick, okay? But what's the point of that miracle? In that miracle, Jesus takes six large stone basins, massive ones that were used for ceremonial washings in Jewish tradition. They were capable guys of holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. Like a child could take a bath inside of these things. And he has a few folks during the wedding take these large basins and fill them up with water all the way to the brim. And then he takes the water that's used for ceremonial washings and he turns it into what? Red, flavorful, extravagant wine. The best wine that anyone has ever tasted at this party. And he offers this wine to any and all who would come drink from this basin. What's the point of that? John records this story because he wanted Jewish people to see the sign that Jesus was giving them. The sign that Jesus himself is the better fulfillment of the ceremonial cleansings. That one day in the sixth hour, he would replace the six basins with his own body. And rather than using water to temporarily clean people, he would shed his blood the color of wine to eternally cleanse people of their sins. If they would simply just turn and trust in him by drinking in the truth of what he did for them on the cross. Y'all, I wish I could preach every chapter right now to you. Everything's the sign. Everything's pointed. And what I love about how all the commentaries talk about the sign, it was always some giant public sign to everyone so that any scholar, any historian, any person could write about that. And in fact, if you read Josephus, again, not a Christian, writing about this Jesus, the dude's like, the guy's just doing stuff. And I, he's writing way more elegant than this, but he, there, there's apparently some signs, some miracles. There's something going on with this man. Everyone's talking about it. All these eyewitnesses are. He does it publicly to say, this is who I am. There's no tricks, nothing up my sleeve. I can't hide a basin in my like tunic, it's massive. It's all this publicly so that you would personally begin to trust and believe in who he is. The second sign is when Jesus then heals a governing official son tucked over in John chapter four. In this story, the official approaches Jesus in Galilee and he's pleading for him to just heal his sick and dying son. 
And Jesus speaks a word of healing to the man by saying, go, your son indeed will live. And before making it home, the official receives the news that his son was completely healed within the very same hour of Jesus speaking the word. So why does John record this story? Because he wanted the Jews and the Gentiles to see the sign that Jesus was giving them. The sign that Jesus is the very word of God. John 1 states, which Kyle will preach next week, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. In the beginning, he was with God. And that very word of God spoke a word of life in which verse four of John 1 states that in Christ is life and that life was the light of men. And indeed that life brought life to this one sick and dying son. And John's like, here's your sign. I told you about in the prologue. He's a life, he's a light. John 4, 5, here's the story of how he brings life and light to the son. The third sign we see, everyone doing okay? We'll go through a little bit faster. It's been a while, y'all. I haven't, haven't got this out of my system in a while. Hang with me, okay? The third sign is when Jesus heals a man paralyzed at the pool of Bethsaida in John chapter five. And it's in this beautiful story, we see Jesus visiting Jerusalem and he asks a man that's been disabled for 38 years, cannot walk on a mat, begging for money every day just to live. And he asked the man the question, sir, do you wanna be healed? And then in the story, before the guy can answer with a yes or a no, Jesus says, I'm gonna heal you immediately, instantly. And he tells him, get up, take up your mat and walk. And the dude does. He gets up and walks. And John records this story because he wanted the Jews in particular to see the sign that Jesus was giving them. The sign that Jesus would be like this man in a way. That Jesus would be a suffering servant that would have his own life laid down. But rather than it being raised after 38 years, Jesus would himself raise himself from the dead after only three days. And this is a sign of what he would one day do. The fourth sign is when Jesus feeds a multitude of people. Remember that? Chapter six, numbering over 5,000. By the way, in that text, that 5,000 was only recorded of the men that were there. If you include women and children and grandparents, it could be thousands more. And this fourth sign, Jesus revealed how he is indeed what he calls the bread of life. One of the I am statements, he says, that he is indeed the better manna from heaven that God sent to feed the Jewish people in the days of Moses in Exodus chapter 16. And he's pointing back to that by saying, remember how God gave you bread from heaven? I'm from heaven, I'm your bread, and I give you life here now and forever. So after feeding a crowd of 5,000 with no more than five barley loaves and two fish and managing then to fill 12 baskets full of extras to be able to give out to his disciples who were serving, everyone recognized Jesus as the ultimate prophet that Moses was speaking of that would come one day. And all of this was to reveal that Jesus can alone provide and fulfill and sustain both your earthly life and your eternal life. All the signs. The fifth sign is also in John chapter six. It's a really long chapter and we see Jesus walking on water. It's a powerful display of his mastery over nature. Jesus walks across the surface of the sea. And he walks over to his terrified disciples in the midst of a sudden storm that sneaks up. And he says with these words, it is I, 
don't be afraid. He climbs on board in a blink of an eye. The storm stops and the boat suddenly reaches its destination on the opposite side of the shore. And it's in this book and with this sign that John is revealing to us that Jesus is the king of the universe who rules and reigns over every ounce of his creation. The sixth sign is Jesus healing a man born blind in John 9 using only mud and some spit. That's a unique way to heal. Using only mud to heal a man who had been born blind since birth, this sixth sign reveals the glory of Jesus as a savior who is, again from John 1, the light of the world who gives sight to the spiritually blind. Like I was, like you might have been. And Jesus can remove the veil and help us to see the signs that he is God, he is Christ. This word is reliable and he's my only hope in this life. Then last and finally, the seventh sign is the resurrection of Lazarus. It's the culmination of all of these signs where he's taking nature and death and sorrow and he's healing all of it. In an instance of divine foreshadowing, Jesus demonstrates his absolute power over death by resurrecting his friend Lazarus. But then that points towards how he himself will rise again from the dead in John chapter 20. Church, do you see what we're gonna unpack? Every story is a sign of how Jesus is the life and the light that you need. There's no place we must turn. Every story, every encounter is someone with sorrow or hardship or mourning. And they turn to Christ and they don't just find a healing, they find a hope. Because let me just be honest, every person that was healed in Jesus' ministry, what happened to them eventually? They died. Is the point of Jesus' ministry just to heal and keep people physically alive until they're millions of years old? No. His physical healing was a sign of his spiritual healing to cleanse the sin within, but then to point towards a heaven that will be that place of forever healing. Does that make sense? Jesus is showing us what his kingdom will look like. And so he's giving signs upon signs upon signs upon signs. My friend, so I stop here and I ask you, what signs have you seen? What signs have you seen that God is indeed a real God? That Jesus is his name? That the resurrection is a real event? That the Bible is a reliable document? And some of us, if we're honest, we actually haven't looked at the evidence Maybe we're here today or you have a really close friend that you love that is like, I can't believe in that Christian stuff because God's not real. The Bible's not reliable. It was written so long time ago. I don't know if the resurrection was even real. But the question is, have you looked at the ample evidence of all of it? Today, we're only just gonna talk about some of the evidence of the Bible's reliability, but have you truly looked at all these signs? Everything we have in archaeology and history and the, the dates and the stories, have you, have you looked at all of them? Have you used logic and philosophy to come to the conclusion that millions and millions of people have come to? That Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. And John's laying out this book, 21 chapters, to show us all of the things that you have longed for. Life, light, hope, comfort, a place to live in one day that's not broken, that won't hurt you, that's safe. Jesus is the king ushering you into that kingdom if your faith is in him, amen? This is what this book is about. Which leads us to our second question, which we got to race through. 
And if you have extra time after service, I've got a professional in the room. Uh, She's got her PhD in apologetics. It is my mother-in-law. Very intimidating to preach in front of her today when she can slay me with all the evidence that's in existence. But let me ask this second question and talk to her. She can wave her hand. She's in the front row here. Wave her hand humbly. It's me. PhD apologetics, talk to her about the evidence of how we can trust the Bible's a reliable historical document. She won't slay you, okay? Bring your hardest questions. She's got you. Now, here's the second question. These verses of verse 30 and 31 have to bring up. If John says, I've written all these signs so that you may believe, hey, John, how do we know we can trust what you wrote? Did you even write it? When did you write it? How do we know? Are you trying to trick us? Are you writing fable? Lots of stories tell us about a promised one. Have you read Star Wars? Have you watched it? Have you read Harry Potter? Right? All of these stories talking about a promised one. How do we know that you're right, John? Can we trust you? Well, here's four tests that you can keep unfolding as the tests go on, but just four tests. If you're curious, if you genuinely have an intellectual mind and you really want to wrestle with the deepest truths, you, you want to know if the Bible's reliable, here's a couple tests to see if this book should even be taught or trusted. The first test is just look at the historical records. Look at historical records. I want you to look at the people, the places, the dates, the archaeology, the geography, the events in the Bible. Look at all of them and see if they coincide with other historical documents that we have in history. Look them up. Contact libraries, go and read, go and see if all of these things are true, if they at least relate. Listen, no archaeological evidence has ever refuted the Bible. In fact, we see in many cases that the Bible actually beat the truth to the evidence. It actually said something existed. We didn't have the evidence. We went and searched for it. Oh, boom, there it is. Here's the example. In the 19th century, the Bible was accused of being fictitious. It made up a story about the Hittite people. Remember them? The Hittite people. people that, those people never even really existed. And they're a pretty big part of the Old Testament. But then all of a sudden in 1906, a dig happens, archaeological dig, and they found the capital of the city of the Hittites, silencing any sort of skeptic we often find the truth in scripture and then the evidence of a historical dig comes after and all of what they find in the dig matches up with the dates and the people and the names and the history. So just start there. If you're not sure if you want to trust Christianity or the Bible and you're just like, I don't know about this man. You seem excited. You seem passionate. I just don't know. At least just take the first test and just look, look at some dates, look at some kings. Look at the archaeology. Look at some people. And if that lines up, then you can go to step two. And step two is this test. Look at the earliest manuscripts, the evidence of the earliest copies of the original of the Bible. Guys, listen, we have more manuscripts of the New Testament than any other writing in ancient history. Do you guys realize that we have 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament? And you're like, is that good? Yeah, yeah. It's great, and here's why. Because we have the works of Plato, which we've heard of, and Caesar, we've heard of. And if you're trying to prove if something is reliable as a document or not, 
then you want to take all the manuscripts possible and you want to read through them and see if it says Jesus is the son of God or Brandon is the son of God. If you have all these variants in the manuscripts, then you're like, I don't even know if I can believe any of that. But what we've seen is that Plato has seven manuscripts. Caesar's got 10 manuscripts. The New Testament has 24,000 manuscripts and all of those manuscripts line up. Because here's what we've been told in culture, right? Man, you can't believe the Bible because it's like the telephone game. It just passes from this person, this person, this person. We have all these variants and we don't know what's real. That's not true. That's genuinely, you can read it yourself, not true. 24,000 manuscripts. And you know how closely they all align? 99.5%. Now, if you're like me, when I first heard that, like, what about that 0.5% preacher boy? You know, like... What do you do about that, huh? And I totally understand. What about that 0.5%? Is it doctrinal error? Is it, is it lying? That 0.5% is simple spelling errors, word order. When the scribes were writing this down, there'd be one scribe reading from one copy. There'd be several others in the room. And maybe the guy spelled horse wrong. He spelled hose and forgot the R. I know it wasn't written in English, but you get what I'm coming from. Small scribal errors. In fact, the Bible is really clear. If you have an ESV study Bible, there are two passages that are disputed, but the discrepancy itself involves no doctrinal significance. It's not saying like, oh, Satan is God and then Jesus is God. Good luck. I hope you can figure it out. It has no doctrinal significance. In fact, if you have your Bible, you look at John, which we'll look in when we get to uh, different parts of John, even John chapter eight, the Bible includes footnotes about any discrepancies we see about a manuscript from one to the other. There's so much evidence that just begs you to look at it and say, this has got to be true and right. Now, I'm not trying to dog on other religions in this moment, but if you take their books, it cannot hold up to the scrutiny that our Bible has for centuries. In fact, the Smithsonian, like the museum, has, the, uh, um, the, the, museum uh, the Smithsonian Museum has like rooted out the Book of Mormon saying it's not, a, it's not a historical reliable document, but the Bible is. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone's believing that at the Smithsonian Museum, but they're saying everything that's in this book, it's historical, it's reliable. These dates, these kings, these places, this, that's all real. What other book is like that? That doesn't have those inconsistencies in it. I will say just quick note, if you want to nerd out, if you're like, I just love this stuff. There's like four of you. Again, it's me and Brandon or two. Kyle's the other one. Maybe there's a third in here. There are slight seeming discrepancies. Meaning there might be a date of a king that says he came to reign when he was this year's old. And then another book says it was this year's old. And you're like, well, what do you do with that? We also, if we look into history, it kind of gives us a little cultural. And maybe that boy's father, which we learn, for Josiah, his, his father passed away, so he became reigning king at eight years old. But ain't nobody gonna let an eight-year-old rule a kingdom, right? So he became king at eight, but then he began to rule as king at a different age. Now, does that make sense for the discrepancy? You're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because if you look through scripture like that and you genuinely, you bring all your intellect, you bring all your doubts, you bring all your concerns, you bring that to this and you'll find that there is way more answers, way more reliability, way more evidence than you ever wished to read. That's the second test. Now, if you make it through that and you still don't believe, look at the prophecies, a little bit of sci-fi stuff, 
So far, all the predicted prophecies that were in the Old Testament, there would be a king and he would live in this city and this would happen to him. All those prophecies, everyone that's already been foretold has already happened in the Bible with 100% accuracy, meaning the dates of kings, the falls of cities, the events of history, even the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus have all been prophesied in the Old Testament and have been 100% accurate in its timing, its place, its events. When many of the predictions were recorded 100 to 400 years before the event happened even itself. The prediction happened, all those people are dead. No one can write about it. It's already been printed. And then the event happens with precision. In fact, there are over 300 of these predictions known as prophecies that point directly to the concept of a Messiah, which is God in the human flesh, which came to free, forgive, and fulfill those who trust in him. J. Barton Payne, his Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecies, lists 191 of these prophecies that literally just fulfill in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There's eight of them. For sake of time, we don't have time to walk through all of them, but it includes the, the birth, the manner of birth, the time of birth, the place of death, how he would die, what would happen, all of that with precision. And what we learn, someone took those prophecies and they nerded out because they're a math person, which we've got several math people in the room, and they built like a statistical probability of what's the likelihood of any one person having eight prophecies that were foretold 400 years before they got there with this amount of precision? Like, what would the percentage of that be? And the prophecy wasn't like, he's going to be born a boy. Okay, well, you got, you know, 50% on that one. Uh, he's going to be born in a place. Okay, that's 100% possible. It was like precision of time. He'd be born in this small city or he'd be born in this time frame when this was happening with this government. And so here's the percentage we get from just eight prophecies. The chance of that happening for any one person, the specificity was one and 10 to the 17th power. Y'all, I don't even know what number that is, but that's one with 17 zeros. One chance and one is 17 zeros probability. And if you're like, I don't know numbers, I don't either. If you're from Texas, here you go, okay? The equivalent of that percentage coming true would be like the entire state of Texas where Mandy's from, all 268,597 miles, square miles, if you would fill up all Texas with silver quarters two feet deep, then mark one of the quarters, blindfold Brandon, and say, go find the quarter that I marked. And Brandon walks all of the 268,000 square miles and then finds one on the two feet pile of silver coins and says, I found it. That's the probability of just eight prophecies come true. But guys, we have over 300 prophecies that foretold with specificity about the life, death, location, place, ministry of Jesus. Y'all, that's wild. Now, it wasn't two guys in the room saying, hey, let's, I'll write the prophecy and then you write fulfillment within the same year. Like that, that didn't happen. It's written hundreds of years beforehand set in stone, and then comes through fruition. That's powerful. If you still don't know, and you're like, I don't know, bro, hanging on, I don't know. Then last, I would say, hey, look at the faith claims. Look at the actual doctrinal faith claims. And I want you to see, do they, do they line up? Do you at least want them to be true? Does something within you desire for there to be 
a cosmic God who's personal. And that things that happen in life aren't just circumstantial or chemical in our minds or just the order of how chaos would happen. Doesn't something ring true in your heart that you, you want to be known, you, you want to be loved? That there's someone who has a purpose and a design that they're going to fix the evil, injustice, racism, murder, hate, brokenness that's in the world and in you and I. Does something ring true about this? And as you read through these faith claims, I pray that what happened in me happens in you. What happens with, with what John wanted, that we would have life and life in him. My friends, that's just four quick tests. If you want to talk to a pro, Trisha Scribner, right there, front row, talk to her, and she will give you every book, resource possible, even the one she wrote on this subject to help out. I hope it didn't too, be too bad. I can still be in your family by the end of this sermon. Last thing we see here, <clears throat> last question. What does John mean? What does John mean that by believing in Jesus, we can have life in his name? You guys still with me? You guys seem like you're with me. You're looking at me at least. It's good. What does he mean? That passage again reads, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that what? You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. We talked about that. And that by believing you may have life in his name. I just want to focus on these last few moments together, life and name. John wants us to have life, which I told you is that Greek word, zoe. It means the abundance of life that in the darkest of circumstances, you can have peace and hope and comfort and steadiness because a life outside of you has given you an inner depth, a strength, something that anchors you when all of this world is falling apart. It doesn't mean you're going to have a happy life, but it means that you can have joy in the midst of sorrow. And John's saying that this is what God is offering you not to just get you out of your circumstances, but to be with you in the midst of your circumstances. And then one day upon death, God will bring you out of that circumstance into heaven for all of eternity. John is telling us that we can have earthly abundant life in God and we can have eternal life in God. That if we believe in him, he genuinely will make us right with him by forgiving sin, removing the record of wrong, giving us his record of righteousness because of Jesus' perfect life, will be matched with God for all of eternity, with him in glory, seeing him face to face, hearing his voice, talking to him, walking with him. This is the eternal life that John gave his life to, that all of the disciples gave in a martyrdom because they were so convinced of who Jesus was. But what does it mean to have life in his name, in his name? Now, for some of you guys, you've been to a wedding recently. Maybe you're going to a wedding today. And traditionally, not all the time, but traditionally you see in a wedding that you see two people getting married and you see one person, typically the female, if it's a traditional wedding, you see her take the name of the male husband. And what she's doing in that symbolic name exchange is that she's taking his care, his love, his provision, 
his, in a sense, without losing her own, his identity. She's taking what's his and putting it on her. And that's what John is saying by you will have life in his name. So who God is, his attributes, his love, his grace, his truth, his righteousness, his sovereign care for you, he's putting that on you. And now you're identified in his name, his personhood, his work, his love is now put on you. And my friends, if we're honest, that's what we're all looking for. Every single one of you is looking to belong. You're looking to matter. In us, you have this deep craving to be known and to be loved. In fact, that's why some of us lie because we're afraid if I'm known fully, I won't be loved fully. So we mask our sin or mask what we've done. In us, we want to be known and loved. And John is saying, you, you can have life in his name. You can be fully known and fully loved. And what's his now becomes yours. His love, yours. Protection, yours. Provision, yours. Eternity, yours. My friends, this book is showing you what your heart longs for most. That you can have life in his name. Guys, I'm excited for the next several weeks. I've heard great things from you guys' encouragement towards Brandon and Kyle. And I look forward for us three walking through this book of John so you can see exactly what John said. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you would have life forevermore. Let's take a moment. Let's pray together.